Hi, everybody. Welcome to uh, our Life is Sweet uh, book club, uh, where I'm reading Clearing the Plains by James Dashuk. Today, we're doing Chapter 6, Canada, the Northwest, and the Treaty Period, 1869 to 1876. Uh, before we jump into that, some corrections and clarifications from the last episode. Um, in the title, right at the beginning of the last episode, I think I said uh, the Monopoly period lasted from 1821 to 1829. Uh, that sh- I should have said 1821 to 1869. It's a much longer period. That was probably obvious as the uh, episode went on. Um, I also mentioned a St. Peter's mission that was a, an agricultural mission established to, uh, to transition uh, indigenous people from away from the fur trade and bison economy to the newly emerging agricultural economy. I said that the Peter's mission was north of Selkirk. The St. Peter's mission mentioned in the book is different from uh, the St. Peter's mission that I mentioned, um, which is a church that still exists uh, north of Selkirk. It, uh, it was also uh, an agricultural community uh, established for indigenous people transitioning to the agricultural economy. Uh, it's the resting place of Chief Peguis, who's been mentioned a couple times. We'll mention him in this chapter as well, I think. But two different St. Peter's, but uh, same idea, basically. Um, also realized I missed when I mentioned the HBC like uh, land policies regarding their retirees when they were granting um, former HBC employees uh, free land in the Red River settlement and how they gradually curtailed that. And that was uh, a racist land control policy, which uh, which it was. Um, to help us like understand like our current world mo- more, one of the things I'm trying to do is like connect the behavior of the Hudson's Bay Company and their policies to like current corporate policies, which are basically the the same corporate policies hasn't haven't really changed changed throughout the centuries. They're still operating on the same algorithm. That's uh, what uh, Governor George uh, Simpson's uh, algorithm: uh, little investment, much profit. Basically, that is the capitalist algorithm. Um, so what uh, what HBC's corporate policies are, they're operating under under that algorithm. When they're, it's also why they're why they're downsizing, why they're why they're closing down former Northwest Company forts that they uh, came into possession of. Um, but the uh, restriction of land granted to uh, former HBC employees. That was basically a rollback of employee pensions, and that's a, a common thing that we've seen happening over the last few decades. Uh, it's a common corporate practice. Um, think of the Federated Co-op Refinery strike in Regina, which is only a few years ago, um, and that was largely over the employer curtailing uh, or eliminating eliminating pension benefits. I'm not sure which one. You could look it up. Um, these are retirement benefits. Uh, that that uh, workers like workers would have fought and won uh, in generations past to uh, to provide for their uh, old age for their retirement. These are retirement benefits. Uh, it's these are uh, funds that they pay into from their own wages, which the employer usually matches, uh, like an RSP plan or or something like that. An RSP plan is different than a than a pension, obviously, but. Uh, Without getting too many too much into the details of of that, uh, 
the F- Federated Co-op wanted to roll back or renege on that, uh, which is basically stealing stealing money from their workers. Uh, that was uh, one of the issues that precipitated the co-op refinery strike. And HBC is doing the same thing here, where uh, workers who would be expecting uh, their retirement benefit to be a land grant, uh, that was no longer on the table. Uh, the HBC pulled that, and they pulled it in a series in a in a they pulled it in a racially hierarchical way, where they said country-born people. First of all, they they cut off country-born people, which is a euphemism for indigenous or uh, mixed European indigenous people, and then sort of like on up the ranks, it got more and more uh, over time uh, restrictive. So they weren't granting land to anyone anymore, but they're selling it to their formal former employees instead of granting it freely. Um, Another thing that's a common corporate policy uh, was mentioned in the last chapter, the HBC providing medical care for disease-stricken family members of indigenous fur traders. And that's something akin to like an ad hoc privatized medical system. Uh, During the smallpox epidemics of the monopoly period, what you would have was like there was no public medical system, obviously. Um, So an ad hoc one was, was provided. The HBC did provide uh, vaccination campaign uh, throughout Rupert's land, throughout the territory that they controlled. Uh, but like with the vaccination program, the HBC wasn't caring for the sick family members of fur traders for free or out of the goodness of their hearts. Uh, they were doing it, uh, doing it, they were caring for the family members to free up the indigenous traders to go back out to the bush to get more furs to bring back uh, to sell to them. So more people collecting furs that's their business. Uh, the furs must flow. That's how they make their profit. Uh, you know, a trader comes and dumps off his sick wife or child or uh, grandmother or their, their entire family at the HBC post, and then the HBC post employees would be looking at providing medical care uh, for them uh, so that the trader can go back to work, basically, for the HBC. And that's what that's what company-provided benefits are. It's to keep you tethered to your to your job and to your uh, employee, uh, because your um, your physical survival now like depends on it. In the absence of a universal public health care program, um, so the profit making algor- algorithm must always be served in every transaction. That includes every medical transaction. Uh, remember, the HBC is a business; it's not a charity, and it's important to not confuse the tr- the two business and charity. The lines are often blurred these days with uh, nonprofit organizations and every large corporation has their own uh, their own charity Ronald McDonald House for McDonald's for instance you're encouraged to donate to your um, local grocery chains charity or the charity that they've partnered with uh, at the till even uh, Bell let's talk day uh, etc um, but just like the HBC wasn't uh, they they weren't caring for the the health of their employees out of the goodness of their of their own hearts. Co- modern corporate charities aren't doing that either. These are largely uh, tax dodges that undermines uh, public health care under the guise of providing health care. It's kind of like, uh, it's not splitting hairs, It's a, but it is nuanced. Uh, and it's important to be aware of it. And this is not, uh, not a new thing. Um, a business can never properly address social ills. It cannot provide necessary health care. The nature of business itself 
creates the social ills that they pretend to address. Like in the HPC circumstance, their very economic model, their action of stripping furs and degrading the land, <laughs> degrades the environment. Uh, it brings smallpox into the environment, which puts their employees and the general population uh, at risk just by their presence. It's the same process at play here. Uh, the profit motive is directly at odds with the requirement of curing disease and maintaining a healthy population. Health isn't profitable because healthy people don't require medical service. Just to get off on a little bit of tangent, um, like a privatized medical system like you have in the States, like that's why it's a complete disaster and a sham. And why like Obamacare was uh, was never going to address it or work. It wasn't designed to. It's not meant to. Um, in a capitalist economy, like no service means no profit. Every service comes with a finance with an economic transaction, and everyone has to profit off of every transaction. So you need to create a, a demand for your service. So uh, the incentive is to create environmental conditions that lead lead to illness. Then you can treat the illness. But uh, chronically, not uh, but to keep people in a in a situation of chronic illness rather than the rather than cure, uh, because if people are cured, there goes your market. People don't need your service. Uh, look at the um, the explosion of autoimmune disorders and mental illnesses are perfect examples of this. Um, these illnesses do exist. Obviously, I have a couple of them myself. Uh, they are just exacerbated by uh, by the current economics. Uh, that's all. Uh, so when your employer steps in and provides uh, benefits, like uh, in Canada, we, our employer doesn't provide all our health benefits, unlike uh, largely the American system. Our universal healthcare system doesn't cover everything. It doesn't cover dental or eye care, for example. So um, a good job is something is one where you get your dental care and your eye care uh, provided. And hopefully uh, your fam your children and your family's dental and, and eye care is also provided and also provides your retirement fund, like we mentioned earlier. These are things that generally your employer provides and that keeps you tethered to your, uh, to your employer. It disincentivizes uh, going out to look for another job, especially one that doesn't have benefits. Um, the economic purpose it serves is to restrict the freedom of ordinary people um, to curtail self-determined or democratic economic activity. Um, a person can't go into business for themselves or form a democratic cooperative enterprise uh, with others if the promise of a pension and health care for themselves or their families is dependent on remaining tied to your current employer. Um, so this type of arrangement makes explicit that the employee employer relationship is not free or equal. The employee is not free to leave the relationship if their very survival and the survival of their families is dependent on the maintenance of that relationship. So what you have here is like instead of a situation of like a a freely a deal freely entered into uh, in the labor market between an employee and an employer, what you have is more of a situation of indentured servitude as your survival depends on remaining to this employer that provides you your health care. And that's in the in the worst cases, obviously. And in some cases, if you're more on the bottom of the working class, this can devolve into more of like a, a surf lord sort of a relationship, more of a feudal relationship, or even a de facto slavery uh, for the most vulnerable workers in our society. So this is, uh, again, like the logic behind why a universal democratically administered public health care system and why all uh, 
democratically administered public services are necessary when you're dealing with uh, with all life's essentials, basically uh, food, uh, clothing, shelter, that sort of thing. Um, and why I th- I think it's not out of the uh, not out of the realm of uh, reasonableness to say that uh, this would be a baseline minimum non-negotiable requirement for a society that aspires to be called truly free and civilized. So that that's my little uh, rant about that, about corporate health care. Uh, not, uh, not a new thing. The HPC was doing this uh, centuries ago. Okay, on to, on to the body of Chapter 6. So we're starting in 1869. The uh, Dominion of Canada was created in 1867 in the East. Uh, it's a new little baby country. Not really a country. It's still part of the British Empire. Uh, it remains so for some time. It doesn't really have a national identity. It doesn't span the continent. It's centered on on the East Coast, Ontario, the Eastern Great Lakes, uh, that kind of thing. But it does have continent-spanning uh, aspirations. Um which meant that uh, Canada acquires the West dr- from Britain in 1869. So, like the ca- the new Canadian state will now be administering Western, what now is Western Canada, uh, on behalf of the British Empire, starting in 1869. So, the British car- Parliament transferred ownership of Rupert's Land and the Northwestern Territory to the Dominion of Canada. This is the Hudson Bay Basin. Uh, all remaining territory of Northwestern Canada, excluding uh, British Columbia. Uh, I think Alaska was owned by Russia at that time. I'm not sure of the timeline, but Alaska was owned by Russia before it was sold to the U.S. Uh, basically, all land that is now Canada, that is now the provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the territories of the Yukon, Nunavut, and the Northwest Territories. The current Northwest Territories is just what remained after all the rest of the land was parceled off into the these newly created uh, jurisdictions over the decades after 1869 none of it was the newest territory created in the 90s 97 i think something around there but so back to 1869 uh, we know from the last chapter that the fur trade is waning the demand for furs to make fancy hats out of is replaced by the demand for silk to make fancy hats out of you get silk from asia you don't get it from northwestern canada uh, the bison economy that provided the food for the industrial fur trade is winding down because the bison herds are pretty much eliminated. Uh, by the end of the 1870s, the bison economy is based in Red River and is controlled by the Métis. They're ranging out across the plains and the prairies, hunting the bison, bringing it back to Red River for processing. Um, they're establishing uh, trade relationships with Americans in Minnesota. For instance, um, they are very big into free trade because they're crossing the border a lot. The bison herds don't respect the border. They don't know what a border is. The border is on the plains is the 49th uh, parallel, the border between Canada and the U.S. So you have the industrial agricultural economy kicking up to replace the bison economy for food. Um, that was initiated in the Red River Valley by the Selkirk Settlement in 1811. So now that the Canadian government has uh, acquired all this extra land uh their intent is to use the plains as a gigantic a gigantic industrial agricultural economy like the model of the red river colony just like uh blown up and expanded all over the prairies wherever there's fertile farmland and the reason for this 
they wanted to do that was that, that this would provide food for the large uh, industrial population centers in eastern Canada, and it would provide grain for export to Britain and the wider British Empire. Uh, the settlers that they would need to uh, perform this project to manage the farms, to establish and manage the farms on the land, they would in turn provide a market for goods produced by companies in the industrial uh, eastern Canadian heartland. So, so that economic uh, circle there. The settlers are also consumers. They're producers and consumers. So this is a, a good time to do a short, hopefully short, just a little diversion, a note on uh, settlers' uh, colonies, race, and immigration. So the groups that uh, the Canadian state targeted to become settlers, uh, they'd be chosen deliberately. Uh, like This is not a, like a random process. Uh, it's not like the, the Canadian government is sending out ads all over the world, come one, come all, uh, free land in Canada. That's kind of how it's portrayed. But uh, the first settlers, settlers are intentionally recruited, and they're recruited uh, because these settlers come from people groups that make them, that the Canadian government believes makes them amenable to their colonial project, basically. So these groups that are, that are uh, recruited are chosen to ensure their priority would be to the new Canadian state, as opposed to when they arrive on their farms, on their plains, they find that there's people already living there, then they integrate into the existing Métis or indigenous populations on the plains. Uh, the Canadian state doesn't want them to do that. They want them to be loyal to the new Canadian state that has just taken possession of the land. It doesn't really ex exist. Um, these indigenous and Métis communities are uh, in, um, in the power vacuum that the absence of the HBC monopoly leaves. There's a little time frame where these groups are um, forming their own de facto governments. Uh, this is especially the case in Red River, as we'll come to. So they're like little autonomous zones, self-governing autonomous zones, until uh, Canada shows up. And it shows up in the, in the form of settlers. So Canada, the Canadian state that is like the, uh, the officials elected to represent uh, Canadian business leaders, essentially, they are seeking out people groups who have already adopted capitalist conditioning through participation in a capitalist economy. Ideally, those are the people that you want. They're already used to living under capitalism, participating in the capitalist process through like uh, private ownership of land, and business, uh, first of all, be because that's what their role will be when they come to Canada is to uh, administer privately owned land and privately owned business. So that meant, ideally, you want settlers from the British Imperial Corps and Canadians, like white Canadians, Eastern Canadians. Uh, those are the most preferred. So like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants from Britain or Canada, Protestant Scots and English, uh, not so much the Irish. Um, don't know how many Welsh went over. You rarely hear about the Welsh. Uh, and then after that, uh, then you want the Germans, Protestant Germans. Uh, that even includes uh, my Mennonite ancestors, which uh, settled uh, in the Red River Valley at this time or shortly, shortly thereafter, uh, the mid-1870s. Not, though they'll tell you, not technically Protestant. These are Anabaptist, but they are coming out of the same uh, Reformation, the, sa the same milieu that uh, 
that created Protestants, created the Anabaptists. There's a lot of crossover between uh, Calvinist Protestants and uh, and uh, Anabaptists, such as the uh, the Mennonites. Um, you see that especially uh, nowadays. Um, other European people groups later on, this is later on, uh, were then recruited to manage the remaining marginal farmland uh, to and to provide a conditioned working class that was required by our new uh, settler landowning class. So that's when you get recruitment of Ukrainians, other Eastern Europeans, the Irish, uh, Jews, Catholics, uh, that kind of thing. That was later on, after the uh, waspy Brits and the, the Germans come over. That's the highest priority. They were especially recruited. Like, my ancestors were deliberately recruited uh, by the Canadian government and explicitly recruited. Um, the problem is, like, a lot of a lot of Canadians, Eastern Canadians, um, they didn't want to. They didn't want to come over. They were already aware of uh, what was going on in the plains and what the weather was like, what the living conditions were like, basically. And uh, uh, it was hard to recruit them to to come out uh, and farm the plains, even with the promise of a uh, free land. Uh, so that's why you had to, to get your uh, your settlers from overseas. And so when you what you get here is basically what it amounts to is like a, a more of a more of an explicitly uh, racial hierarchy, uh, in that you're looking for the the whitest people. Basically, the category of the social category of whiteness is is created essentially to to decide who manages land, which we experienced that in the last chapter, which we already talked about. Um, so, like, whiteness originally applied only to uh, what we call wasps now, Br uh, Protestant Brits and Germans, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Uh, it was then expanded by necessity, uh, as you needed settlers, to manage the land. So, like, the category of whiteness was gradually expanded out to other different people groups or races. They called uh, uh, Europeans of different people groups were thought of as completely separate races at the time um so yeah that's when you get uh whiteness bestowed on eastern europeans and ukrainians uh the irish southern europeans yeah every, all the other groups that we said that we mentioned before um so uh these people of the lesser european races were managing the more like marginal farmland the more parklands uh, you see that on on the prairies and the block settlements mennonites right in the most productive uh, region in the Red River Valley, uh, Ukrainians on the on the margins of the prairies, uh, the marginal land of the parklands, and you also needed workers. So these people were also provided labor for farmers and the newly established business owners. These people were less were generally from the lesser European races, uh, so called lesser European races. People of people of the colored races were also being brought in most significantly to uh, construct the transcontinental railroad that the Canadian state required. So you have people of what they referred to as the colored races, the Asians, the Africans, etc., uh, American blacks. Uh, they were imported to perform the most dangerous and menial jobs, Chinese for the railroad construction, uh, black people for porters, other personal in-home menial service jobs. I'm sure there's countless other examples. Um, the already existing Métis and the other mixed, uh, mixed heritage white slash indigenous peoples, they were 
permitted to participate in this new economy only by virtue of being able to pass as white. Um, the French and Spanish in South America really got, and the Caribbean, like really got into codifying their hierarchies, their racial hierarchies. They split them into, I don't know how much it is. You can, you can look it up 16th or 32nd degrees of, of whiteness. The officially sanctioned racism, the legal definitions of race got really intense. Um, it was like less, it was like less legally implemented here. It was more just like a social thing that you knew who passed and, and who didn't. Like white passing Métis in the Red River Valley, for example, uh, just became French. You see all the towns, all the French towns in the Red River Valley, all the towns that have Saint in front of them, uh, all the ones uh, surrounding the uh, Mennonite block settlement reserves, the Mennonite colonies. Um, these were largely uh, existing, pre-existing Métis settlements. But with the passing of time, they became French and the and the Métis and stopped identifying as much with Métis, the white-passing the white passing members of these communities anyway. Um, if you're those unable to pass as white, still remained Métis. The boundaries of whiteness, which are the boundaries which decide whether you get to participate in the officially sanctioned economy or not, uh, that passed right through uh, families in some cases, where you have white-passing members of the family participating in the mainstream economy and non-white passing members of the family being relegated to uh, to the fringes or still trying to practice the, the traditional economy. Um, so if you weren't able to pass as white, you were excluded. And sometimes you're able to assimilate into the still existing uh, indigenous groups who are still residing on the plains and their traditional bands and communities. In some cases, even at this time, uh, still like with the Plains Cree, still trying to practice uh, more traditional uh, ways of life. Um, and But sometimes you were just left in a limbo, in a legal and racial limbo, where you didn't belong to any groups. And that's where you have people like uh, Métis settling on like road allowances and beside railways and, and stuff, because that was uh, newly federal land that wasn't claimed by any other uh, group. This is what like the officials considered squatting. And they lived on, like, non-surveyed land. Uh, sometimes they would take up homesteads. But I think uh, Howard Adams in Prison of Grass uh, notes that a lot, most Métis didn't bother taking up homesteads because they knew when the Canadian land surveys uh, came in that uh, they were going to be dispossessed of their homesteads anyway, that the surveyors and the government wouldn't, uh, wouldn't respect their uh, existing property, uh, how it was organized anyway. Um, keep that in mind when you have, uh, your conservative friends talking about uh, respecting private property, by the way, uh, capitalism doesn't respect private property. Just say private property is a social construct, just like every, everything else. Uh, it exists where it's, uh, convenient for the powers that be and then ignored when it isn't. And of course the, um, existing, the communities that retained indigenous status, let's just say were, um, they were relegated to reserves after the completion of the treaty process. So when you're thinking of current Canadian immigration policy, it still largely follows this same uh, philosophy, despite Canada's claims to uh, benevolence and multiculturalism. If you're coming to Canada as like an officially sanctioned uh, immigrant, you're not a refugee and you're not 
uh, crossing the border so-called illegally, um, you're being approved for immigration because the government believes that you're largely like amenable to the Canadian state's uh, economic philosophy and that you will fill like a role within that officially sanctioned economy. Either you will be like a, a business owner or a landowner, a professional of some sort, or um, or you're willing to work in an extremely dangerous or menial job. Sometimes if you're an immigrant to Canada, you would be a very uh, well-to-do person, a person, uh, an upper middle-class person in your country of origin or a, or a large landowner, a business owner, that you still own land and businesses back in your country of origin, but then you might be uh, working on the front lines uh, in a group home or a factory or a fast food joint here in Canada or doing skip the dishes or or uber or whatever uh often two or three jobs at a time uh and you're being specifically recruited to do those jobs despite what your social position back home is it's irrelevant when you come here i've had a lot of newly arrived people as co-workers i've largely worked with the uh, with immigrants throughout my working career and uh them feeling like they've been swindled by Canada is not an unusual story to hear uh, when you're talking to them uh, because they were swindled, especially if they came over as students, by the way. Foreign students were just uh, ripping off. They pay like four times more tuition than a Canadian-born student. Uh, that's specifically to make money uh, by universities lacking universal public funding of universities. That's kind of the... Uh, the scuzzy stuff you're going to get, along with a lot of land speculation, by the way, just to say. So, yeah, um, the multiculturalism, the, the the liberal multiculturalism, yes, is largely marketing at best and straight-up propaganda at worst. Um, immigrants of non-white races and white races as well are still largely imported as commodities commodities of cheap, of cheap labor. Their prospects for joining the mainstream middle class here are slim, let's just say slim to none. Um... Indeed, the existing white middle class is actively hostile towards them. Uh, in my experience, I think the data bears it out if there is any. Uh, despite all the uh, diversity and inclusionary uh, posturing, all the training and all the workshops and all the language, um, the reality isn't really changed. Um, there are grants a lot of grants for diversifying the workforce and uh, inclusionary hiring and spots at post-secondary institutions and stuff. But uh, those are largely uh, tokenary, we'll say. Uh, people confuse what like tokenism is, but that's, uh, that's what it is. So there's a lot of confusion about, about this stuff. And hopefully this, when you start thinking in this way, it clears a lot of it up. Uh, but yeah, uh, the immigrants are and newcomers um, as, or whatever the, the current language of the day is, these people are all around us. They do still do the dangerous work and the menial service. They're rarely noticed, rarely factored into anyone's equation, including the members of the, the middle class uh, diversity, uh, do-gooder network. They don't really care. Um, this is the condition of pretty much anyone uh, who finds themselves part of the working class. Uh, the existing middle class just despises you. Uh, they basically just want you to shut up and go away. Or uh, if they can raise money off of you in, in somehow, if they're a member of a, uh, of a nonprofit group or something, even even better. 
Uh, there's because there's a lot of uh, a lot of money for the sort of like papering over the reality. Um, but no, if if you're a member of the the working class, and especially if you're a racialized member of the working class, uh, you're basically treated like garbage, and you're expected to be uh, to remain so. Of course, this includes downwardly mobile white members of the middle class, i.e. me, if you want to know why I rant about this stuff. There, here's your grievance politics for you. But if there ever was a time for mass society-wide workplace organizing, uh, this is the time. Uh, just saying. It's already kicking off. Um, racialized uh, members of the working class are leading uh, this uh, wave of workplace organizing and the established bureaucratic unions are scrambling to catch up. Um, most of us at some time, I'm assuming if you're listening, you are also a member of the working class as I am, whether you're a middle-class person or not, uh, you are a member of the working class, even if you are middle-class. Um, most of us will be called upon and required to collectively fight for our collective well-being at some point. Usually this will happen at work. Um, and if you're organized, you are in a much better position, you and your coworkers are, uh, to advocate for your respect, dignity, and in some cases, uh, economic survival. The point at which this fight occurs is at work. This is the point of uh, economic exploitation. And it's this relationship that all the other different types of relationships are clouding around or obscuring this relationship the um the concept of race settler colonialism uh, ident all the uh, all the intersectional stuff all the identity type stuff which is real and important uh, by the way uh, you need to but the point is to draw relationships of solidarity through these points of intersection and the point at which they all intersect is at the workplace which like I said, is the point of uh, economic exploitation. That is the main point. There's other po people who are making money off of other people or you're working to make money for other people. Those are your only two choices. Or the, either that or you're like relegated to like a uh, permanent underclass. In the case of um, the indigenous people in, in Canada, specifically on the plains, that is uh, what you have. That's what the reserve system is for. Okay, enough ranting about that. Um, yeah, join a union. Make a union. You don't even have to join an established union. <laughs> Organize at work. Something like that. Uh, build solidarity and and relationships of care in your in your workplace. Uh, if you are a worker, that is the uh, utmost task for you. Do it. Okay, where was I? Um, construction of the transcontinental railroad. See, it's that's often that is often cited as like the main reason for Canadian Western expansion is um, is to build a railroad. But why do you need a railroad? A railroad isn't a reason for expansion; it's a tool for expansion. And why do you need to expand in the first place? These things are all given as like uh, ends. These things are all ends or talked about as if they're ends of themselves, but they're not. What purpose do they serve? These are all tools. So, like, let's let's look at that. Um, Yes, Canadian economic and government leaders, economic and government leaders are the same, by the way. Um, they required a transcontinental railroad. But why? The railroad was built to serve the settler colonial project. Yes. But the settler colonial project 
which we were just describing, is in turn in service to the expansion of the then-current British-slash-Canadian capitalist imperialist project. Big words, but just know that that in turn was required for the real project, which was, and still is, uh, the real project is, here's the big secret, is getting a bunch of second and third sons and cousins of uh, formerly English aristocratic families filthy rich. Okay, the end. (laughs) That's all you gotta know. That's the entire project. That's all economics is. Uh, that's all capitalist economics is. Let's just let's just say. Let's just be real about it. Um, so all these things are just tools for that minimum investment, maximum profit. Profit for who? The rich guys at the top. That's it. Okay. Uh, the railroad was simply a tool for this process to move large amounts of goods and settlers. It wasn't the primary reason that Canada needed uh, the land of the West. Like I said, keep in mind, racist settler colonialism is real. But racism and settlement and colonialism are not the ends in and of themselves. You need to get past that. There's a thing past that. What's driving those things? What created those things? These aren't uh, embedded original sin type uh, conditions of the human soul. People aren't born to do uh, racism and settler colonialism. Even if you are white, that's simply not the case. These are things that the people at the top are doing and that could by living in the world that they create, we are conditioned to carry them out as children. This isn't a big conspiracy. This is just the world that we, that we live in if you take it at face value. So these are necessary ideas and processes ultimately serving an economic purpose to create profit. That's it. The railroad and the sheer speed at which it could transport goods and people, this would once and for all connect the planes to the Canadian state, to the new Canadian state, and the Canadian business interests that were uh, that had created the Canadian state to administer this little uh, corner of land on behalf of the British Empire, basically. So through it, the the uh, pr- Canadian prairies were now directly connected, brought into the direct sphere of the new Canadian state, the British Empire to which it belonged. Through that, the world-spanning capitalist economy over which that British Empire presided at the time. That's at the time. It doesn't anymore. Uh, America largely now, obviously. The United States. Um, And you can go explore that too. It's not just the United States, obviously. Canada's a partner in that. It's still a partner in that. Uh, So, again, we're going to touch on now, like, conspiratorial thinking. Because that existed at this time of uh, in the 1870s as well. Um, There's never been a time where conspiratorial thinking wasn't... Uh, wasn't in play it just had different types of names that manifest in different in different ways so a lot of this what i'm why i'm going through all the trouble of describing all this and even like reading clearing the planes in the first place is to uh if a lot of people around me are into conspiratorial thinking but you don't need that you just need to understand history and, and the world as it is it's just a lot more boring than than a uh, global uh, uh, global com- cabal or uh, aliens or I don't know something. So conspiratorial, reactionary, populist sorts lump in libertarians and evangelicals of all that sort, freedom convoy folks, uh, hippies, new agers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're all kind of doing the same thing. They get very agitated about globalism and the global economy. 
Why? They grew up in it. They've lived it. It's been the de facto economy for centuries now. So they go on and on about the new world order, one world government, trilateral commission, federal reserve, all that sort of nonsense. Antichrist stuff or end times, book of revelation shit. It's all kind of the same. Uh, these things aren't, aren't new. We think of Winnipeg or Manitoba or the Canadian prairie provinces as like as backwaters, even with our, within our own countries. Uh, we've been connected to the global economy for quite some time. We've been connected to the global economy since the 1660s, in fact. Uh, from the moment the non-such landed on the shores of Hudson Bay, we were connected to the global economy. You don't need arcane conspiracies to understand this, so get over them. Give them up. Don't look at them. They're not helpful. Conti they just exist to continue to mystify and obscure the actual material relations that are in place that you can see on their bare face. They're just the things that go on around us all the time. They're just the things that we participate in every day. If you're going to work, you're participating in it. If you own land, you're participating in it. If you own a business, you're participating in it. Everything that you do is part of it. It's the fish that are in the aquarium in the aquarium and they don't know what water is, basically. That's an old analogy, but it's but it works. It's the water that we're swimming in. It's the air that we breathe, the, the ether in which our souls are floating, anything like that. Um, so instead of globalism, just think capitalism, just which is the name for our current economy, and that's not a conspiracy either. Instead of communism, just think um, more capitalism, capitalism in Russia or China. Socialism isn't when the government administers programs and regulates the economy. That's just the government... That's just a capitalist government administrating capitalism in their jurisdiction. That's all that it is. Capitalism is our current economy. Just think the current state of affairs instead of globalism. Instead of a one-world government, just think empire. One-world government is the end state of, uh, of an imperial process. So instead of... And that... Uh, and in this case, in the case of Canada and Manitoba and where we live, that was the British Empire up until the 20th century uh after world war ii was the death knell of the british british empire you could say world war one i'm not an expert on this this is all broad strokes broad strokes now currently the american empire america is administers the global capitalist system on behalf of the agents of all global capital capitalism that's it just rich guys america administers the whole business on behalf of uh, rich people all over the world that includes the capitalist elite, not just of Europe, it includes the capitalist elite of Russia as well, and Saudi Arabia, and Israel, and South America, Africa, ev everywhere that a capitalist economy uh, exists, which is pretty much everywhere, um, that's, America administers it. Uh, you, you could talk about China too, but I'm not really going to talk about China, that's a little bit out of my purview Fanatics of uh, current uh, global political economy or whatever will be able to talk to you about that. But uh, that's that's not what we're talking about here at the moment. So now we're just talking about how that is affecting uh, the Plains and Canada. So the, the ruling business elite of Eastern Canada, which are now like the second and third sons and cousins of formerly aristocratic British families, that's who becomes capitalists feudalism flows into capitalism there wasn't in some places there were there were breaks but like it's 
kind of, kind of same idea of accumulation to an extremely small minority at the top at the expense of the extremely large majority of us at the bottom. That's all it is. Uh, they've consolidated uh, their control of Eastern Canada uh, through the creation of the new Dominion of Canada. Now they're inserting themselves between the economy, uh, the economies of the people of the West and the empire. They're administering this on the, on behalf of the empire, of which they're a part, they're friends and family back in Britain. Uh, they get their cut. They get their cut of the profit. Now they're the middlemen uh, between the, the, uh, the riches and resources extracted from the actual land from, uh, from mining and farming and fur trading, all that stuff flows through them. They get their cut. It gets shipped out to the wider empire. That's the whole of business of Canada. That's why Canada exists. That's what it still exists to do. That's what it's still doing. That should explain a lot. Uh, especially if you're like, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau Stan, uh, he's doing the same as what a conservative government would, would do. The conservatives would do basically the same as what Trudeau's doing and the uh, federal under, if there was such a thing as a federal NDP government at this point, it would largely do the same thing, which is carry out the Canadian national project. And this is the Canadian national project, uh, to act as, as, um, middlemen in the distribution of resources from the land to the wider global economy. Just the same role that the Cree used to play in the old school fur trade with the HBC, just on a grander scale. That's it. Think of oil. Think of the politics of oil. What what drives that? That's what drives that. That's all. Um. So yeah, the Canadian, the Eastern Canadian business elite, they get their cut of the profit now. They always did. They were getting their cut of the profit from the fur trade as well. That's what the Northwest Company was. Uh, largely so from this point on they will literally they will dictate they'll literally dictate their terms to the people already living in the newly acquired northwest territory and uh, it was that that conflict that's what leads to the conflict in the the red river rebellion or red river insurrection or red river resistance so knowing what's in store for the future the people living on the plains the indigenous groups red river settlers metis they all know this is coming okay they all know what what this means they all know what what being part of Canada means. They know what the project is. And knowing what's in store for the future, what incorporation into Canada means, various people groups on the plains react in different ways. Everyone wants to secure the best possible deal for themselves and their communities prior to the official transition. Because they know once the official transition happens, once the Canadian officials arrive, and they're arriving with troops, by the way, after that, it'll be all over. Because uh, then Canada dictates terms. You have to set the terms uh, before you get integrated uh, into the Dominion. Seeing the massive changes coming over the horizon, Indigenous leaders such as Chief Pegwas, I think it was mentioned in the last chapter, they tried to negotiate directly with with Britain decades uh, before the 1870s. In, in the 1850s, he tried to do this. He wasn't successful, but he n- knew what was up. Uh, he ended up being part of the treaty negotiation project uh, process for Treaty One, I believe, but he was trying to do this in the 1850s, not the 1870s. But it wasn't until the Canadian state had officially taken control and were able to dictate terms that's when uh, the treaty process kicked off. That's when they were uh, coming to the indigenous groups and saying, "Hey, uh, we're ready to do treaties now." But by that point, that was just a formality. Uh, they had already taken control and would be dictating terms. Um, Mostly, the indigenous people were s- subjugated uh, well before the uh, treaties came into place. I'm 
sorry to say, not that there wasn't resistance and still isn't resistance, but if you're talking about like conquering uh, the indigenous peoples, like they were, they had already been subjugated or conquered by that point, as in completely decimated by the destruction of the fur trade and the bison and the just incredible rolling smallpox epidemics. It that was, um, I think it was mentioned in the previous chapter, like they they were out of the game as able to assert their sovereignty in any in force anyway uh to enforce their sovereignty over their land by the 1870s by the the treaty period um so the canadian leaders why would they want to inter- why would they want to do treaties well it was a legal re- requirement by their own legal system uh they needed something written down on paper to show to the world to britain to the americans mostly who also had their eyes on the Canadian plains, and were, a lot of them were there already, uh, which we'll get into that. Um, they had designs on it, so the Canadians' government basically needed to show a piece of paper saying, hey, wait a minute, no, no, we own this land, and the people occupying it, the previous people occupying it, they gave it to us freely. Uh, this is the treaty that proves it, see? So, there you go, we own it. So this was a legal necessity. It's a little bit of extra paperwork to wrap up uh, to support their claim in case the Americans started sniffing around north of the 49th parallel, which they're already doing. Um, they needed to prove that all the land of the Northwest really actually belonged to Canada, and it was in no doubt that the Canadian, that Canada controlled it. Um, the Canada already controlled it, well, on, on, on the Eastern Plains anyway, and in the, in the Red River. Treaty or no treaty, that's also the thing. Like the treaties and the treaty signing process was largely largely just a spectacle in the eyes of the Canadian leaders. Sovereignty over the Northwest was never in question. They were sovereign over it. They had troops. They could send them out. They were soon to create the Northwest Mounted Police, which would become which would later become the RCMP. Like the British Parliament had decided that Canada was in control of the West. It was decided in the empire had decreed it. Uh, the indigenous people's rightful claim to sovereignty over their own land, they that never really had any bearing on the proceedings, and it still largely doesn't. So we keep that in mind. Uh, even with all the land acknowledgements and even some of the some of the stuff that's that's uh, a little like overtures to uh, giving land back. Like the uh, the southern uh, the southern chiefs uh, organization, I think that's what it's called. The southern chiefs organization, the southern chiefs taking over the Hudson's Bay Company building downtown Winnipeg. That recently just happened in the span of like since I started making these podcasts. It's only like a few months ago. Um, like the big Hudson's Bay Company department store in downtown Winnipeg, the, the flagship store uh, was turned over to indigenous groups. And with much, much fanfare that this is a reconciliation thing, and it's largely symbolic, uh, the HBC was trying to dump that building off on a, on a lot of people for a long period of time. It's trying to give it to, to the city, trying to give, give it to the University of Winnipeg, which is right there. And I mean, like, literally give it to them. To, they tried to give it to everyone before they uh, gave it back to uh, the Southern Chiefs. Um, so... It was it was an albatross around around their necks. It wasn't profitable anymore. It was just a money sink. So I'm not saying that it's not a good thing that uh, uh, that this transaction didn't happen. This building uh, that the Southern Chiefs now have this building, 
it is certainly like on a symbolic in a symbolic sense like extremely uh meaningful but uh, whether it plays out as being a benefit or a detriment long term that's still to be seen i obviously hope it is a benefit to indigenous people especially indigenous people living downtown who make up i think like the majority of of the homeless obviously there's a lot of a lot of space in there but i hope it's not just used to promote uh middle class indigenous businesses and uh grant seeking nonprofits or whatever i hope it actually does some actual good which it could you never know i'll reserve judgment so in addition to getting the indigenous leaders to sign over uh their land in writing the treaty process provided a bit of a political spectacle for the indigenous peoples to feel like they're participating in something i guess you could kind of see it in the uh in the bay building transaction there was there were dancers drummers elders and you know provincial canadian uh, economic and, and political leaders were there the conservative premier of uh, manitoba heather stephenson these people are not uh, friends of uh, indigenous rights and sovereignty they're not friends of any ordinary person so you know why are they there it's just marketing uh heather stephenson kind of interesting just an aside about her family she is like uh the scion she's of a if not scion i don't know her family she comes from a long line of uh, wheat barons by the way the uh the uh wheat transporting uh companies uh that existed in manitoba on the on the plains here uh before the uh ordinary farmers banded together to create the wheat pools uh to fight and counteract the uh the price gouging uh, that these uh, wheat transporting companies uh, were doing. Uh, Heather Stephenson's family uh, got their uh, got their money from uh, gouging uh, Canadian farmers on on wheat transportation. And uh, I forget what their what their company was, but you could you could look it up. It's McDonald's Holdings or something like that. I I don't know. It's somewhere, and it makes a lot more sense when you know that like uh, Heather Stephenson withheld. Uh, failed to disclose like 31 million dollars in like land transfers during her term her time as uh premier if not premier she was a uh she was a cabinet minister beforehand while she was a sitting mla uh, anyway that's what you would call just like straight up like uh, corruption uh this is we it's not just uh developing so-called developing countries in the global south like where do you think they learned that type of patronage and and corruption it's from us so okay where were we so yeah so for the canadian government the treaties were a bit of paperwork and a bit of spectacle for the indigenous leaders and their communities this was a literal like life and death situation they were bargaining in good faith in order to secure an equal place in the future economy of canada that's what they thought that they were doing they thought uh, that they were going to be equal partners uh in the future economy of canada that that this would they were bargaining for the future well-being of their children and grandchildren, that this would ensure their prosperity and their safety in the future. Um, the, so Canada and the indigenous peoples were coming at it from completely different sides. And Canada like completely took advantage of them, let's, let's say. Like this, these treaties are uh, largely, a sh- largely a sham, I would say. Uh, I don't think it's out of the realm of reasonableness to say that. Um, I don't think we're going to get to the individual treaty negotiation process. 
uh, in this episode. This is probably going to be like a two-parter episode. Yeah, I'm over. I'm over an hour now before editing, so uh, maybe we'll leave that here as it is. And in the second episode, I'll go a little bit more in depth because there's a lot of stuff happening between 1869 and 1876. Uh, I'll break this up uh, into a, like at least a two-parter on chapter six. And in the second part, we'll go a little bit more in depth into the uh, Red River uh, resistance that leads directly to the creation of the province of Manitoba. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, my family, the how they got here in the 1870s, uh, stuff later in the chapter, again, like the treaty process, and then the whoop-up trade that's happening over on the in the Western Prairies in Alberta. Because that's extremely interesting uh, as well. But we'll leave it there for now, and we'll pick it up. We'll pick it up later with the second part of uh, of chapter six. And uh, may you be well. And we'll talk to you later. Bye bye.